really all Christian creation needs to index itself by what does this do for the flourishing of the vulnerable. And the beautiful thing is that when you orient your creation in this broad sense of your innovation and your sustaining towards the flourishing of the vulnerable, everybody ends up flourishing. Welcome to the Disciple Shift podcast. What does it mean to follow Christ in the 21st century? We speak with significant Christian leaders from around the world to pursue wholehearted discipleship. I'm Chris Kandaya. Right now, I'm in Hell's Kitchen, New York, once one of the most notorious places in the world for criminality, now a well-to-do downtown neighbourhood. I'm at Corum Deo, a seven-storey innovation hub home to Praxis, an organisation that works as a creative engine for redemptive entrepreneurship. And I'm speaking with Andy Crouch, Praxis partner for theology and culture. Andy's two most recent books are The TechWise Family, Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in Its Proper Place, and 2016's Strong and Weak, Embracing a Life of Love, Risk and True Flourishing. But probably his most well-known and significant book has been Culture Making, Recovering Our Creative Calling. Andy serves on the governing board of Fuller Theological Seminary, and for more than 10 years was an editor and producer at Christianity Today, including serving as executive editor. He served the John Templeton Foundation as a senior strategist for communication. His work and writing have been featured in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, Time, and most importantly, he received a shout-out in Lecrae's 2014 single, Nonfiction. A classically trained musician who draws on pop, folk, rock, jazz and gospel, he led musical worship for congregations of 5 to 20,000. He lives with his family in Pennsylvania. Andy is a thought leader in the US church, and as we spoke about entrepreneurship, he helped me think about how creativity and an ongoing dissatisfaction with the way that life is can be both a blessing and a curse for our discipleship. I know you'll love Andy's unique take on discipleship. This subject is one that every Christian leader and every Christian disciple needs to wrestle with. So here we are, we're in the Corum Deo building, which is the home to Praxis, a really innovative incubator of social enterprise. And to tell us about that is Andy Crouch. Andy, tell us a little bit about the journey that brings you here to New York, to a seven-story building in Hell's Kitchen. Many people will know you through your books and your writings. What brings you to this point in your life? Well, it is an exciting point to be at where we actually have communities of people and organizations that support them that are living out a vision that I tried to write about almost exactly 10 years ago in this book called Culture Making. And in that book, I said, it's not enough to condemn culture. It's not enough to just critique or criticize culture. You actually have to create culture if you want to change it. And one of the many amazing things that's happened in the 10 years since that book is this organization called Praxis which started about seven years ago by two guys, Dave Blanchard and Josh Kwan, who met one another while they were in business school and design school. And they asked, what would it be like to take this accelerator model from Silicon Valley and the venture capital world and apply it to entrepreneurs, both in for-profit business, but also in the not-for-profit sector, who are actually creating new culture? And could we help them grow their businesses, grow their enterprises, grow as people, grow as a community, and offer the world a picture of what Christians make when we're really making at our best? So I've been part of this kind of informally and then on an occasional basis. And last year, we started asking the question, 
should we just do this together? <laughs> and so I'm now a partner. I'm full-time. I'm here several days a week in New York, live in Philadelphia, continue to travel around more broadly in the church, but really trying to support people who are making culture together. When many people think about discipleship, they're thinking about a Bible study in a church on a Thursday night. We're here in a, a very trendy part of New York. A lot of the world's culture is being shaped here. What does spiritual formation look like for some of these social entrepreneurs? Well, I think the key transition is in seeing discipleship as something that happens every moment of your day, waking and sleeping, working and playing, worshiping and doing your vocation, which is often for most of the folks we serve at Praxis, in a sense, a secular vocation. Most of the enterprises that Praxis works with don't have a sort of overt faith commitment on the front door, though there is a faith commitment in the hearts of the founders or the, the chief executive officers. And when you make this shift, you realize there is so much material for discipleship every single day when you are working with other people. I mean, ultimately, so what is discipleship? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. And when you are in the intense calling of any kind of work, really. Entrepreneurial work has its own angle on this, but any kind of work this applies to. You're with other people, so you're kind of pressed to learn how to love. You are hopefully bringing various aspects of your heart, soul, mind, and strength to your work. And so it's an opportunity to ask, how am I loving God with the fullness of who I am? And of course, to the extent I'm not, or to the extent my job or my company or the whole system I work in doesn't give me opportunities to do that, to me that's really an issue of what the Bible calls injustice. It's an economic arrangement that doesn't allow people to be fully human. But really, ultimately, discipleship is about how can I be fully human in the midst of a broken world with my own brokenness, my own sinfulness? How can I learn to love wholeheartedly God and neighbor? Not just wholeheartedly, but whole-strengthenedly, whole-mindedly, right? And then everything's material. So it's not that the Bible study is not a very important moment in my week that kind of recenters me and gives me a way of attending to the Word of God. But that has to then be worked out in what I do the next day when I walk into the office. And how do I interact with the person sitting at the desk next to me? How do I interact with the person who has a very different kind of role in the company, whether someone much more senior or someone who has a very, what is seen as a menial or servile kind of role? And all that is material for discipleship, as I would see it. And I think it opens up so much that the church has kind of neglected. We've done a pretty good job at talking about people's own sort of internal sense of self. And we've done a reasonably good job of talking about marriage and family. And these are absolutely crucibles in the best sense of discipleship. But the place where you work and the neighborhood where you live, for that matter, are also places where you spend a lot of time, where life is often not easy, where the way forward or the way to follow Jesus is not clear or evident, and it's all material for discipleship. If one of our listeners thinks they might be an entrepreneur, how would they know? What are some of the kind of indicators that they, they have this entrepreneurial gifting? That's a very interesting question. Uh, so there's a kind of restlessness that comes with entrepreneurship. So I think that's a clue. There's a risk tolerance that, well, I just think it's, it is necessary to develop at least. I don't know if you have to have it initially, but you have to develop it because 
anytime you try to create a new process in the world. So I think of entrepreneurship as fundamentally about process innovation. That is, it's finding a new way to do something that people are already doing, or it's finding a new thing for people to do that meets and satisfies and kind of gives expression to a human need or capacity in the world. And anytime we try to do that, it's high risk. So if you're not restless, you're not going to be an entrepreneur. If you are not risk tolerant, you will not survive as an entrepreneur. (laughs) So you have to learn how to handle that. I think a kind of capacity maybe that goes with this is in a way a capacity for being different and being comfortable with being different and in a way a capacity for being alone. Now you need to be good ideally at involving other people and connecting with other people, but there is this kind of solitary quality to the dreaming, imagining, visioning. Most people found things with other people. So you're never entirely alone. It's not exactly solitary, but you have to be willing to be very different from your neighbors and from your neighbors in your church, from the people you went to school with. And if you have all those qualities, you might possibly have something to offer the world as an entrepreneur in one way or another. And it doesn't always mean starting something new. It can also mean process innovation within an existing institution or organization. In your work with entrepreneurs, what do you think some of their frustrations are with church as it normally stands? Hmm, That's interesting. Well, I think that a lot of energy in many churches, let me actually divide it into two different kinds of churches. So I think there are some churches that are sometimes beautifully traditional, but are so inattentive to innovation. There's just no appetite for it. There's no sense that if God is really a creator God and we're made in a creative image, that we would be creating new things. They feel stuck. Um, And I I think there are many churches that are like that. Then there's another kind of church that is incredibly innovative and always has that kind of restlessness. And the challenge there is that often all of the energy of the church goes into its own intra-church innovation. That is, what is celebrated is the things the church itself as an institution is doing or as an organization is doing. And it neglects the ways that we can be part of innovation in the broader world. I just think it's very rare, just empirically speaking, to find a pastor, whether of a kind of very traditional church or a very innovative church, who consistently shows a kind of active interest in what the members of that congregation are doing out in the world beyond the church. And it's partly because churches are volunteer-led enterprises. They need people to give of their time. The pastor has to be good at recruiting volunteer energy, which means they have to tell the story of how what's happening in that church is significant. And I don't begrudge anyone that, and I celebrate people who can do that well. But what gets neglected is... Many of your people are in environments where they are bringing a lot of energy and creativity to innovation. And we're not talking about what that's like, great consolations and celebrations are like, but also what its pitfalls are, what the temptations are. And we're just not teaching people about that because our imagination kind of extends to the horizon of the church building or maybe the meetings of the church members and not into the world where they actually serve most of their time. As a former pastor myself, I can relate to that <laughs> volunteer drive yes. and the the microsystem that a church is, the machine that needs to get fed. I remember I was pastoring a small church in northwest London and a new couple came and a new couple coming <laughs> is like the gold rush, right? And, and not just a new couple, but a couple that brought Bibles to church, which oh. was like a virtue signaler that they might actually take <laughs> teaching seriously. <laughs> 
And during the sung worship, the wife, or we assume the wife at this time, because we didn't know each other, we just saw each other across the, uh, the congregation, has her hands raised, and the husband during the sermon is taking notes. Oh my goodness. And so... <laughs> Your dream. My dream has come true. You know, you remember Tom and Jerry when, when Tom would see a live chicken going around the courtyard? He didn't see a chicken. He saw roast dinner. Yes, that's right. And so I, I'm looking at this couple and I have already, without even meeting them, without even greeting them, I have worked out a wonderful plan for their lives, how they're going to run my youth group or they're going to be my house group leaders. How do you think pastors can balance this because like you said volunteer organizations there's lots to be done there's often a passion or a vision for the place they're trying to serve how do they balance this call to the locality the kind of Mm. parish model with releasing and equipping the saints I mean for me it was almost a voice of God needed to speak to me before I'd recruited them I don't have this very often but it was almost just ask them what they're doing Wow. And that, yes. that was enough. But you often address leaders and pastors. What advice have you got for them if we're going to see this kind of culture making entrepreneurial spirit take root in the wider church? You know, by the way, this uh, temptation you felt is actually something entrepreneurs feel very keenly because when you have a vision and it's driving you and you're waking up every morning thinking about it it's very easy to start looking at every other person as a potential resource for that vision or hindrance to that vision, like either obstacle or way to advance the vision. And you start using people rather than using things. You know, it's Augustine's usus versus fructus, right? This idea that we are meant to enjoy the best things in creation are not meant to be used. They're not means to another end. They're just meant to be enjoyed. The most helpful thing I've ever heard, and I I don't know if this will sound like an answer to your question, but I think it is, on this subject, and one of the most helpful things I've ever heard on any subject came from an American woman who was a teacher of the spiritual life named Leanne Payne, and she said this, either we contemplate or we exploit. Either we contemplate or we exploit. And I think it's so profound that every encounter I have especially with other people, although I actually think it applies to the creation itself, that when I meet you, if I don't contemplate you and and just pay attention to who you are in exactly who you are now, not how I want you to be, not the roast dinner, <laughs> but who you are now, I will jump right to using you for some end of my own, almost instinctually. Whereas if I essentially pause and just pay close attention to you without needing anything from you, then my next move doesn't have to be one of using you. It's one of encountering one another. And that's actually what you alluded to, I think, is that you needed to slow down that recruiting process and just ask them what they were already doing or how they were, what had brought them there that day. And if we can insert (laughs) that contemplation then we find out things about people that we'd never find out if we jump right to what can they do for me. And so I think, you know, if you're a pastor and you have people in your congregation, your number one job is not to recruit them. It's to contemplate them. It's really to behold them in Christ and to learn enough about them that you're able to speak with real authority in their lives, not just to sign them up for something, but to offer them ultimately Christ himself and the gospel of Christ. And I absolutely believe that if you do that, enough resources will be released to support your ministry, both financial resources, time and volunteer resources, and people will be released into the world 
and will say, at church I'm known, people speak, in a sense, prophetic words to me that articulate what I'm called to be every day in all the different places where I live and work. And, I mean, you'll have real spiritual authority. And I think the problem is, honestly, often churches, at least here in the U.S., have taken so many cues from the business world that knows a lot about marketing. And some of these are really good insights. The best marketing actually comes from a contemplation of your customer and a real empathy with your customer. But it's not all based on the best marketing. (laughs) It's based on techniques. It's based on ways that things grow at this moment in our culture, but it's not based on real spiritual authority. And I think developing real spiritual authority comes from contemplation. And then you can invite them to uh, (laughs) serve in your church. So I want to know what you did with that couple. Did you actually recruit them or did you get to know them first? And what happened to them? Well, Ah. it's a good story. turns out the wife had a really significant role as a founder of a sexual health charity. And her impact was way beyond the reach of our parish, our town. Ah. It it was a national role. The husband was a kind of lead thinker in a youth culture think tank. And so my job was cheerleader. Yes. Cheer them on. What do you need? And it, it was costly and painful because our rotors were empty and the youth group needed help. And, you know, it's a sacrifice. And one of the challenges, if, if you are an entrepreneurial church pastor and you really feel called to the location that you're at, that tension is, is very real. We, we, we can't reach the needs of this community. And yet I don't want to exploit those people that are coming in. So my, my wow. question I guess, and and this is maybe a wider question about entrepreneurs. The entrepreneurs that I've come across are often super creative, you know, 100 ideas before breakfast. Mm. How do they figure out which is the one or the the few that is God's call for them? So, I mean, that's my problem as a pastor, isn't it? You know, is my call to equip that entrepreneur or is it to call them into this locality? Can it be a mix of both or do I need to kind of give myself fully to one or the other but for an entrepreneur they're seeing the world with that restlessness mm. there's so many things that need fixing how have you found maybe from some of the people that you've been working with how have they honed in on the thing you know one of the things we do at praxis is work with serial entrepreneurs so people who have done one thing after another and often not always but often have seen success in several ventures we're actually working with someone now who is on her third company. And there is no roadmap for this. And I don't think there is even, as near as I can tell, a set of principles that are universal. But I do think it has to come very deeply out of the person. So I really believe the greatest resource we have for culture is that we're persons. (laughs) That may sound a little odd, but this is the difference between us and every other creature is we're personal. Now, I use the word person, not individual, because a person is an individual in relationship. To be personal is to be relational. So the best and deepest ideas come out of personal relational experience. We have two founders, two brothers among the alumni of our accelerator program who traveled while they were still working in investment banking to Tegucigalpa in Honduras and met people who lived and worked in essentially the recycling industry of the third world, which is people who live in and among garbage dumps and find things of marginal economic value and salvage them. It's a really terrible life to have to live, but it's the life that is available to those folks. And these brothers met people in this community, got to know them, and just came back and began to ask, what could we build that would provide a better kind of job for people in that community? So it was 
rooted in that community, but it had this kind of international quality of bridging between the affluence of the North and the capacities as well as the needs of the South. And they, they just sort of found their way to this amazing toy company called Tegu, uh, named after the capital of Honduras, Tegu Zagalba, Tegu Toys, which just makes these beautiful little wooden toys that have magnets beautifully hidden inside them. They become a huge hit and they provide really good jobs. They're environmentally sustainable in the way that production happens. And they give parents a great kind of toy to give to their kids that doesn't have batteries and doesn't make all kinds of noise and just allows the children to be creative and play. How does that happen? I mean, it's grace, honestly. And it's this iterative process of discernment with your partners, with friends, ideally with your church community that comes alongside you, that lays hands on you and prays for you. And then it's all kinds of false starts and going down one road and realizing this is not leading in the right direction, reversing, going back to the previous fork. There's just a lot of that in any development of something new, which is so related, I think, to following Jesus. I mean, Jesus had an overall sense of what his mission was. But it seems hard to deny that he was willing to take unexpected turns. I mean, the most dramatic is the Canaanite woman, who at least seems to change his mind with the way that she approaches him. Now, I don't think she changed his mind in the sense of his ultimate mission. Or his mother, who comes to him at the wedding at Cana at the very beginning and says, they don't have any wine. He says, my time hasn't come. Why are you asking me to do this? And over and over, Jesus himself shows this incredible agility and responsiveness. And then he calls his disciples to the same thing. And they've lived very circumscribed lives. They know what they do. They're fishermen, they're tax collectors, whatever. They've got a role. They've played the role. Probably their parents played the role, maybe for generations. And Jesus says, okay, you've been fishing for fish. I want you to fish for people. And like, what? what is going on? Well, Jesus is saying, none of your capacities, talents, and history is going to be wasted or forgotten, but it's going to be put in the service of something very new, and I'm going to take you somewhere that you don't expect to go. I think that is the way of discipleship. And so not all of us do it in the form of starting a completely new company or developing a new product, but I think we all are meant to follow Jesus with that kind of agility, openness to change, openness to new direction, always in the direction of God's mission that his kingdom would come, his name would be hallowed, his will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. But the way to that is not laid out for us. It has an improvisational quality. And that's what entrepreneurs have to discover every day. I see an entrepreneurial streak in my life. I guess I'm nervous that sometimes it's a bit like when you look at an old school photo. The first face that you look for is your own face, Hmm. right? And so because I'm creative, when I look at scripture, I find the creative parts. And I'm nervous sometimes I might elevate the creative and I think, hold on, you know, another aspect of God's character is sustain it. Yes. You know, being faithfully reliable, consistent. And so the person that has a day job as an accountant, and hopefully they're not a creative accountant, that's not necessarily a good thing, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. So sometimes they go to church and they, you know, it depends what kind of church you're from, but they sometimes hear the creator God means that we must be creative <laughs> and they feel somehow inadequate as a disciple because they don't have that entrepreneurial spirit so again how do we get that healthy tension because I'm with you I think we need to incubate creatives and entrepreneurs but I want to affirm the calling for the faithful plodding deliverer reliable consistent person so (laughs) help me with that 
I sometimes, to give people kind of a map of culture, I draw a chart with two axes and, and one is symbolic versus material. So we live in a world now that really values people who work with symbols, whether they work with language or finance or kind of representations of the world. And we now devalue in the world the, the working with the material world. And then the other axis is creation on the one hand or innovation, but also at the other end is what I call cultivation, which is taking care of what's already there, that maintenance work. And all occupations have some component of both, but some are much more about the material world, and some are much more about cultivating than they are about innovation. And you're, you're right, like creative accounting, not really the right idea. And so, you know, in one corner might be, say, plumbing, right? I don't really want a creative plumber either. I just want a plumber who keeps plumbing good. It's very material. It's very maintenance-oriented. It, it preserves systems. But of all the vocations on this chart that you can put up, you know, novelist is a symbolic innovator, teacher is a symbolic cultivator, inventor is a, is a material creator. The one that I really most want in my world is the plumber. <laughs> and I want someone who's just keeping these good achievements of human culture good and passing them on to the next generation. And here, I think we're not well served by forgetting that the classical Christian doctrine of creation includes the sustaining of the world. God, in fact, the way that Christians classically talked about it, God is continuously creating the world. He is bringing and holding the world in being by his creative word. He doesn't start it at the beginning like you would wind up a top and then let it go or wind up a clock and then walk away. He's continuously creating through his spirit. And so when we sustain and continue the work, that is equally creative as when you start something new. As if we human beings start anything new. All we do is discover latent possibilities in the creation. We don't create ex nihilo the way God did. So all our creating, I think, needs to be rooted in keeping. Our making needs to be rooted in keeping, creating rooted in cultivating. And this is an issue, by the way, for entrepreneurs even. Because it's one thing to have the idea, but all ideas have to be executed. And execution is all about sustaining. And it's about sustaining energy over time, creating systems that will continue to continuously create that thing you initially envisioned. Not everyone is called to the same stage of this process. So it may well be the case that someone who starts a company with a completely new product is unlikely to be the person sustaining that company 40 years from now. It's just a reality of temperament and personality. But I actually would say the person who's sustaining that company 40 years from now is just as much of the creative act in the sense that as God is sustaining the universe this very day, the astronomers tell us 13.9 billion years into the story, God is just as much the creator today as he was the day he spoke it into being. And so we can look at the whole spectrum of callings from the most novel and innovative to the most routine and sustaining and see that these are all imaging God as creator. They're all part of imaging God as creator in the midst of God's creation. Production of the Disciple Shift podcast is made possible by our friends at World Relief. World Relief is a global humanitarian relief and development organization that partners with local churches around the world to end the cycle of suffering by transforming lives and building sustainable communities. With initiatives that focus on disaster response, health and child development, refugee and immigration services, economic development and peace building, World Relief works holistically with local churches to stand for the sick, the widowed, the orphan, the alienated, the displaced 
displaced, the devastated, the marginalised and the disenfranchised. Learn more about World Relief and the part you can play in serving the vulnerable and the marginalised by visiting their website, worldrelief.org. We've just spent a, a very interesting evening watching a recording of the Trevor Noah show. And for listeners that aren't familiar with Trevor Noah, he's a comedian making social commentary. And just hearing some of the things that are going on in American politics right now, whichever side of the political scale that you're on, there are people that are increasingly depressed, um, pessimistic about the future. Uh, you made an interesting comment to me that you thought the creation of culture, the entrepreneurial spirit, the business could be a really interesting influencer of the culture, maybe even more so than political advocacy. I've not heard that before within a kind of Christian frame. Do you want to express that a little bit further? We pay so much attention to politics for a number of reasons. One is it's a a very clear competition. And I think human beings like to watch competitions. And the media sure love to be able to frame things as a competition, a kind of zero-sum contest. And if it's between good and evil, all the better. And if each side thinks the other's evil and their side is good, like doubly the better. So it's made for the kind of media we have. And the kind of media we have are made for the politics we have. I mean, think about how different our media are from the Hebrew Bible, which was the media of the people of Israel. So it has political chronicles, the King's sequence and the Samuel sequence, but it also has poetry. If you open up the Hebrew Bible, like what's your chance of hitting a psalm at random? High, right? Or hitting poetry at least. Mm. Prophetic poetry, psalm poetry, wisdom poetry. You've probably got a good 40% chance of hitting one of those. You could go for days watching any cable news and never see a bit of poetry, right? So in a way, the media we have has accommodated itself to the politics we have, and the politics we have is accommodated to the media we have. But there are other ways that are much more consequential that shape the world. And I dare say song and poetry and theater and comedy, which we saw tonight, all these storytelling aspects are in some ways much more determinative and including on politics. I mean, to my chagrin, because I think it's so facile and superficial, the Harry Potter books have been incredibly politically influential as the generation that read Harry Potter as children comes of age politically. And now they see the world in terms of, you know, Gryffindor and Slytherin and, you know, muggles and mudbloods and, you know, Draco Malfoy and blonde people who seem to represent nationalism get identified, right? And it gives them this sort of metaphorical prism through which to interpret their world. That's politically powerful. And so there's literature and language and all that, but then there is also creating new technologies, bringing new technologies to market. This can be, I think, very damaging, depending on the technology, but also very opening of new possibilities in a way that politics is not capable of doing, almost by definition, and that government can't do. So Christians are tempted to get really caught up in our political moment, and it's not to say there aren't serious stakes there, and I've at moments had to step in as much as I could with whatever voice I had and give my take on things. But I think it's so, (laughs) you're at least a much more happy and hopeful person if you spend your day trying to create something that will move the horizons for people and give them a new way of imagining the world and imagining human flourishing in the world than if you confine yourself to the zero-sum game of especially party politics and elected politics. Boy, that is, it's such a narrow game, and it really can't change very much. All the change comes from other players in the system, and I just would love for Christians to have 
at least as much ambition as it were to be part of that as we are to have a sort of stake in the very narrow game of our electoral politics. It's very helpful. We're trying to help both individual Christians that want to deepen their discipleship journey, shift their following of Christ to a different level, but also the pastor that might be interested in exploring how they might make their church a more discipling culture. I'm keen to be able to give people materials that might help them get started on that. Are there maybe three books that you would say were a great starter on this journey of exploring, I suppose, entrepreneurial discipleship? Well, a really fundamental one is Dorothy Sayers' book, The Mind of the Maker. This beautiful, inventive, Trinitarian account of what it is to create. Now, she's writing as a novelist and playwright and poet, but it applies to almost any kind of creation in in the sense of invention and, and bringing something into being in the world. And she just lays out in really nuanced and interesting ways how that mirrors the life of the Trinity and how if your creativity doesn't mirror actually all three parts of the Trinity, it's deficient in various ways. It's really an amazing, classic, important book. I am a writer, so I think about books on writing, which I think apply more broadly, like Madeleine Lenkel's book, Walking on Water, which is also about the life of discovery that's involved in creating fiction, in her case. So those are just foundational kinds of texts. Uh, if I've recommended two by other authors, I, I would say, I think my book, Culture Making, at least for its moment, uh, written in 2008 or published in 2008, uh, was an attempt for our moment in history to articulate a new way for Christians to see everything they do as part of their discipleship and as part of actually bearing the image of God in the world. So I, I, there must be a better third recommendation <laughs> than Culture Making, but... Uh, we'll go with that, since you put me on the spot. If you hadn't recommended it, I would have done. Culture Making is one of the books I end up quoting very often as we talk into this space about what mission, what the kingdom of God manifesting itself in our world today could look like for the average believer. So we're grateful for that book and grateful for your time. Is there anything else that you would hope we would have spoken about? Is there something that you wanted to say that we haven't had a chance to talk about yet? Well... Yes, uh, we should never lose the horizon of who we're creating for. And for me, the Catholic social teaching tradition is so helpful in defining this really useful phrase or uh, idea of the, the common good. And as I understand the common good, it's about the flourishing of the vulnerable in community. The common good is realized in a society when the vulnerable flourish, that is people who would be at risk of not flourishing, nonetheless come to the fullness of what they can be, sometimes with limitations of various kinds, but still they're able to participate in life to the full. And that only happens in healthy communities. And I think not least in the startup world and the world of entrepreneurship as it's refracted through our sort of celebrity media, it can sometimes be about solving the problems of the affluent and the people who are not at that much risk. But really all Christian creation needs to index itself by what does this do for the flourishing of the vulnerable. And the beautiful thing is that when you orient your creation in this broad sense of your innovation and your sustaining towards the flourishing of the vulnerable, everybody ends up flourishing, partly because all of us at one point in our lives were very vulnerable, uh, no matter how secure we may feel today, and all of us will be very vulnerable, and many of us sooner than we imagine. And at those moments in our lives, when we are not able to just sort of write our own ticket. We will desperately hope that we live in a society at every level, business, government, education, healthcare, 
that has been designed and created and sustained in such a way that the vulnerable can flourish. So that's really the core question we should all be asking ourselves every day. How am I contributing to the common good, the flourishing of the vulnerable in community today through what I do? That's so helpful. Um, I was nervous that the poster boy for the kind of entrepreneurship we were talking about was going to be Elon Musk. But I'm, I'm hearing more William Wilberforce and the giving ourselves on behalf of those that God would prioritize his care and attention for. So that's such a helpful way to end this podcast. Thank you so much for your time. We're excited about Praxis and the next phase of your ministry there. And uh, just wish every blessing of God on you in this next phase of your life. Thank you. Thank you very much, Chris. So great to have you here in New York. After speaking with Andy, I walked through the streets of Manhattan back to my accommodation. I thought about the radical change that had happened in this city, how it had been transformed from one of the world's murder and drug capitals to now a well-to-do, trendy neighbourhood. I wondered what businesses and social enterprise might be sparked by Christians in this generation and whether they might be inspired by the transformation of New York to dream bigger about what faithful entrepreneurship might achieve in the long term. I thought about how rare it is to find churches encouraging congregations to seek justice, not just with the leftover time they have after work, but actually through the work they do. I wonder whether that is one of the decisive disciple shifts that needs to take place. We, the church, must recognise that our whole lives matter to God. Our work, our family, our leisure, all of it is included in the call to seek God and to seek justice. My journey through Manhattan took me past TV studios and theatres, shops and restaurants. And with Andy's words ringing in my ears, I wondered what it would look like if more Christians saw the spheres of entertainment, hospitality and business as opportunities to demonstrate the coming kingdom of God. I wondered what it would mean if we could have a vision not just for a New York, but a new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven to earth. We're on a mission to help Christians rethink discipleship by being more faithful to scripture and therefore more holistic in our practice. To help us on that mission, please rate this podcast wherever you've accessed it from and spread the word on social media. I'm Krish Kandaya and this is the Discipleship Podcast. Join us again soon.